something or shifting over what we normally do. Not that we have a set time, but I know people get accustomed to certain times. And so uh, hopefully we'll get through this. And um, in reasonable time and yet do justice to it, be able to uh, help bring some light and shed some light on this. I love the, the study of, um, of prophecy. And a lot of times prophecy uh, becomes very dry. It becomes very fact-oriented. You learn a lot of facts and figures. You hear a lot of people uh, give their opinions on a lot of things about what things mean. Uh, I try to be very careful. If I, let, if I do have an opinion, I try to let you know it's my opinion. I try to take the Bible for what it says. And there are obvious times where it's figurative and other times that it's literal. And uh, I think the Bible is usually fairly clear within the context when those times are. And uh, so uh, I hope that God will give, uh, I'm sure he will if we ask him to, that he'll give insight and guidance as we study these things. And, uh, but we want to be as clear as we can on them. What we've studied so far is uh, that uh, the, the first three chapters were seven letters to seven churches. Um, each of them had issues, uh, or they were doing exceptionally well. There were two of them that were doing exceptionally well. And uh, we learned a lot of lessons from those churches, different types of uh, characteristics of each of these seven churches. And it's interesting to note that through the time of, uh, the time of Christ until present day, uh, you can see very distinct periods of time in the overall generalizing of the characteristics of local churches during those periods of time that seemingly coincide very closely with the characteristics of those seven churches uh, in, in order uh, uh, that they're given in, in Scripture. Um, some people uh, uh, don't see that in Scripture, and that's fine. I believe that God is so perfect in writing things that some of that stuff just happens. He just... Because he's so perfect, it's just there, and that's the way he writes. And it's even though it's literal churches, it still has some prof, uh, prophetic sim, uh, uh, significance to us. And so um, we've studied that in the first three chapters. In chapter 4 and 5, we find John caught up, and we've spoken about the pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, the, church, uh, is, uh, the local churches have been raptured out of the world at this point, and John gets caught up into heaven uh, through a vision. And in chapter 4, we see him uh, at the throne, and we see uh, some things in chapters 4 and 5 regarding the description of the throne and the things that are taking place. We see a seven-sealed book in chapter number 5 uh, that uh, they go through heaven to see who's worthy to open the uh, seals of that book. And uh, there's sorrow in heaven, and John weeps uh, greatly because no one is worthy. And then one of the elders comes and tells him, the Lamb is worthy. The Lamb hath prevailed to open the seals. And so uh, Jesus Christ is the one that's referred to there. Uh, he is worthy to open the book of the seals. He's the one that has the right. He has the authority. He paid the price for the sins of man. If man rejects, he's the one that has the authority to bring judgment on those that have rejected him. And uh, so he is worthy of those things. In chapter 6, we begin to see these seals open. And that's what we talked about and preached on and taught on last Wednesday night were the six, six of the seven seals uh, of that book and uh, how there are certain things uh, that take place under each of the seals. Now, it's interesting to note uh, that the first four seals uh, bring some, some difficulties to the world. We see the first seal, the Antichrist, comes to power. Uh, we see famine and war, even though peace is promised. 
and we see death uh, on the earth. We find four horses that are spoken of there in the first four seals. And then the last two seals, you don't have any more horses or riders on them. The horses and the riders are not sent from heaven. These are uh, horses and riders that are in existence, and they are here and bring destruction. They bring death. Um, They bring to power the Antichrist. And so I don't believe these riders to be angelic beings, but I believe them to be uh, devilish beings and things that uh, have been instrumented by Satan. Now, I want to take just a moment and clarify that because it's going to make some significance about something we teach tonight. Hold your place in Revelation chapter 7. I want you to look with me real quick to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. And uh, let's look in verse number uh, 4. Uh, let's go, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 5. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 5. Uh, you know, I'm going to read verse 3 and then go down, we'll read down through verse 5. Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica was known for their confusion about end time events. And Paul teaches on it, uh, both, both uh, epistles that we have, he teaches somewhat on some of the end time events. And uh, in chapter number 3, or verse number 3 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So he's speaking here about the tribulation period. And he's spoken of, he said, that day will not come uh, until there's a falling away, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now notice what he says here. The son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped so that he is as God, sitteth, uh, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. But he's not, of course. This is the son of perdition. So this is speaking very clearly. I mean, there's no question about that. This is dealing with the Antichrist, the one that comes and claims, I am God. And he sets himself up as ruler on the earth. And yet he is not God. And there's going to be many, many people. We'll see this as we continue studying prophecy. There's going to be many people that are going to be strongly deluded and strongly uh, um, deceived. And they are going to believe this is God. And they're going to serve him as though he is God. But notice what it says in verse number 5. Remember ye not... <coughs> excuse me. He says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. In other words, he says, look, I shouldn't have to teach you again. Uh, I'm telling you this again. I already told you once. Any of you ever feel that way when you're talking to your kids or your dogs? I already told you once. I shouldn't have to tell you again. That's kind of what he's saying here. Verse number 6, notice what it says. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. In other words, uh, Satan would have long since already got, gotten these wheels in motion, but there's something that is holding him back from doing this. And verse number 7, it says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, I have always felt like that was the Holy Spirit being taken out of the world completely, that he is no longer... Uh, in the world at all once the tribulation period begins. I do not know that I hold to that any longer, and I'll explain some of that why. Um, but I used to believe that way. I do know this, that he's going to stop hindering Satan's work. I do know that for certain. 
because the Bible says that in Second Thessalonians chapter number two, there's somebody that is that is hindering this man, son of perdition from coming to power already. The reason he hasn't already done it is because the Holy Spirit will not let him do that. Uh, but there's going to come a day where he's going to be taken out of the way. doesn't mean he's leaving, but he's being taken out of the way and allowing this to take place and for these things to happen. I personally believe that the first four horsemen uh, in the first, six, uh, first four of the six seals are, these, are the moments where the Holy Spirit has been taken out of the way and Satan is now free to do this thing. I believe that based on Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I think there's a very strong biblical uh, argument towards that. And that these four horsemen are uh, each sent from, from uh, Satan, and they're at least part of his group, the devils that work with him. And we've already talked a little bit in the past about the spiritual warfare that does take place in a, play, in a way that we don't see it. There, uh, there are spirits that, that war. Uh, and we've talked about that based on the book of Daniel. If you'll remember back when Daniel prayed uh, and was asking God for an interpretation to something, an explanation for something, and an angel was sent. He spent 21 days fasting and praying in a sackcloth, and he didn't eat anything. And it took 21 days for this angel to get to him. And the angel told Daniel when he came, he said, At the first day that you started, I was sent. But he said, the prince of Persia withstood me one in twenty days. It took me twenty-one days to get here because there was an opposition, a devilish opposition that was hindering that angel from completing his mission. So much so that he said he had to call Michael, one of the chief angels, to come and assist him and help him to get through and to answer Daniel. So we understand some of the hierarchy of, of spiritual battle that goes on. Uh, in the spiritual realm and things that uh, are very clearly shown in Scripture that way. We don't know the fullness of it uh, by any means. But we, the Bible gives us a glimpse into it. The Holy Spirit being taken out of the way. He's, he used to, he, the, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the word let or letteth uh, is used there. It is an old English word that has the exact opposite meaning today that it used to have. Um, it used to, nowadays it means if I say let me go to the store, that means... Do not hinder me or allow me. But in the time of the King James writing, the word let in the Old English meant to hinder, to prevent, to keep from. And uh, so that's what the Holy, that's what it's speaking of there in chapter 2 and verse number 5 and 6 of Second Thessalonians is that the Holy Spirit is he that, um, that hindereth the, the son of perdition. And that when he's taken out of the way, this son of perdition will rise to power and he'll begin his work. He does that. There's four of them. Kind of interesting to me that there's four of them. We're going to see that here in just a little bit. Then the fourth seal is the martyrs who come and say, or the, I'm sorry, the fifth seal are the martyrs that come and say, uh, Lord, how long until uh, we are avenged for our, our having to shed our blood? And then the sixth seal <clears throat> is uh, the earth beginning to be uh, judged. And we see in verse number 12 of chapter 6, and I beheld when he opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, the moon as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely uh, uh, figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heavens departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth. And so we spoke of that, how that there's earth catastrophes that are taking place during this time. We don't have a rider, we don't have a horse, but things are beginning to happen on the earth. The earth physically is beginning to be judged in order to 
judge man for the sin. The earth is being affected in order to bring judgment to man in the sixth seal. That brings us to chapter 7, and the seventh seal begins here. The seventh seal, or the seventh, the, the, the time, I'm sorry, the seventh seal doesn't begin until chapter 8. The seventh seal is be, supposed to begin at the end of the sixth seal, but we have in chapter 7 a period, a space of time that is blocked out between the, the sixth and the seventh seal. And so let's pick up reading in verse number 1. We're going to read a couple of uh, verses here, uh, and then we'll jump into it. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, and that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east and having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth uh, and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, I'm going to stop here for a minute. The sixth seal is the earth beginning to have catastrophes and problems. And there comes in these first three verses another angel on the scene. And this angel comes and says, there are four angels that are sent to hurt the earth. And he tells them, stop, don't do it yet. You're not allowed to continue this until... I have sealed some people on the earth. God has shown some mercy even in the midst of His judgment. Isn't that an amazing thought of God? In the midst of tribulation, He puts a pause on the things that are happening, and He says, wait a minute, guys, stop. I want to go in here. I want to show some mercy to some people, and we're going to put a mark on them, and, uh, and, and we're going to go from there. Uh, there's a couple of interesting things. There are four angels spoken of in verse number 1. And um, it says this, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, uh, holding the four winds of the earth. Now, some people have debated, well, what are the corners? What is that significant of? Uh, I'm going to give you some Bible for it, <clears throat> and then leave it up to your, dis your discovery and see what God leads you to think on these things. It is given in context of the four winds. Uh, Dave and I are pilots. We like to fly airplanes. In fact, we went up today for a couple hours. And one of the things we have to do constantly while we're flying is we have to check the winds. And when they tell us what the winds are, they describe the direction of the winds. And uh, we, we base them based on, and now when we hear it in the airplane, they give us a degree of the compass where they're coming from to be a little more specific. But when we do a, some of the initial briefings, when we're getting ready to do a flight, we want to know what direction the winds are coming from. Are they coming from the north or the south or the east or the west? And it talks about the four winds of the earth. It doesn't mean there's only one wind that only blows to the north, and one wind that only blows to the south, and one that only blows to the east, and one that only blows to the west. They blow all through the 360 degrees. But as long as man has been measuring and identifying the direction of wind, they have used four cardinal directions. Now you say, what are these corners? Is, that, is it a literal corner of the earth that we're speaking of here? It could be because the, the word corner here in the Old English and the 1828 Webster's can uh, uh, make a, uh, it has the idea of where two lines converge and where they meet together. It doesn't have to be 90 degrees. It could just be at any corner, any angle that takes place. However, there is two, two instances in Scripture that do not deal with it being an angle, but deal with it being the fullness of or the magnitude of or the length of thereof, to be the full length of. Um, 
And I want us to look at those real quick because uh, what it's trying to get across here in these first three verses is not that there are four distinct places on the earth where these angels stand, but they are encompassing all of the world. They are the fullness of each direction. No matter what direction you go, these angels are in control of that. And that's what the, the gist of verse number one is getting at, uh, is the length of it. Let's, let's take a look here. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. To, um, Le, uh, let's go to Leviticus chapter number 21, all the way back in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter number 21. So, again, I, I tie the four corners within the context to the four winds because it's referenced here. And these winds are noted. If you turn on the, the news tonight, listen to the weather, they're going to say the winds are from the north, or they may say from the northwest, which, again, uses two of those points, or from the northeast, or from the southeast, or they use the four cardinal um, directions to indicate where the winds are coming from. And, again, within the context of that. But let's look in Leviticus chapter 22 real quick. And, um, and I'm just going to share this with you. And uh, I, if it's something that you disagree with, that's fine. I'll let you peruse it and take it over, and you can come to your own uh, conclusion on it. <clears throat> but I do believe that this is speaking here not so much of a specific physical area on earth as it is speaking of the fact that these four angels have control of pausing this judgment over the whole earth, the fullness of it. Let's take a look in Leviticus chapter 22. Let's look in verse number 5. And uh, this verse says, Or whosoever toucheth any creeping thing, he's speaking here of things that the priesthood is supposed to be very, very careful of. Or whosoever toucheth any creeping thing, whereby he may uh, be made unclean, for a man of whom he may take uncleanness. Um, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 22. I'm, I need to be 21. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay, here we go. Uh, the law is concerning the priest. So verse number uh, 5 and verse number 21. I've read in, the, read in the wrong chapter. They shall not make baldness upon their head. I could not have been a priest. All right. They shall not make baldness upon their head. Neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard or the length of their beard, the fullness of their beard. They are not to put a razor to their beard. They are supposed to let it grow and, and to grow naturally. That's one of the things that these, were, these fellows were supposed to do. Nor make any cuttings in their flesh. Uh, look down also to verse number 19 in the same, in the same passage. Uh, let's back up to verse uh, 16 a minute. So these are people who are prohibited from the priesthood. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whatsoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. For, whose, for whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach a blind man or a lame or he that hath a flat nose. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Or any superflu anything superfluous, something that would be standing out or something that would draw attention to. Or a man that is broken-footed or broken-handed or crook-backed or dwarfed or that hath a blemish in his eye or be scurvy or scabe or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of his seed of Aaron and priest shall come nigh uh, to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath, he, uh, he hath a blemish... He shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. He shall eat the bread of his God, uh, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go in unto the veil, nor come again nigh unto the altar, because he hath blemished that he profane not my sanctuaries. For I, the Lord, do sanctify them. And the Lord told it unto Aaron and to his sons and to unto all the children. And I think I wrote a wrong verse down here again. 
But anyway, verse number 5 would be enough to suffice, but I'm going to try to find the verse because it was in here. Uh, is it 41? Nope. I'll have to get the other one for you. I'm sorry about that. But uh, anyway, verse 21, again, is just dealing with the fact that it talks about the corner of his beards, and it's dealing there, and if you look up in the, Web, in the Webster's 1828 uh, Dictionary, uh, you will actually see that definition given the extent of, the fullness of. Um, and it uses Leviticus chapter 21 in verse number 5 as a, as a reference to the context of corners being used in that, in that manner. Uh, so again, very easily we can see that uh, chapter number 7 in verse number 1 is not necessarily speaking of an angel standing at this particular point on the map or on the earth or this particular point on the earth but that they are, they are at these extremes of these, all, the, all the directions that you can be in the earth, that they are covering the fullness of it. That makes sense in the context of what we're reading. Because understand at the end of chapter number six in the sixth seal, the earth is beginning to go through these things, all of it. So much so that the Bible says the whole earth is being dealt with these things. They're having pestilence, they're having famine. Um, they're having darkness, they're having the sun, they're having all these catastrophic things, these earthquakes all over the world. And chapter 7 begins, and these four angels are told by a, uh, by a fifth angel in verse number 2, I want you to stop. He cries with a loud voice here. And it says uh, that he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So you'll understand how that makes sense within the context. Again, we want to look at the old language, the old uh, definitions, the old uh, understandings of that, and that very, very, uh, very easily clarifies that. Otherwise, it makes uh, very awkward sense to think that an angel is at one point on the earth, and yet they're controlling things all over the earth. Angels are not omnipresent like Christ is or like God is. He's, they're not everywhere all the time. <clears throat> so, uh, very helpful in that understanding that portion of Scripture. Then uh, he talks about here in verse number 3. He says, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed, notice this phrase, the servants of our God in their foreheads. Uh, Miss Penny and I were talking today a little bit about this uh, idea of the mark of the beast. Now, this is not the mark of the beast, but it is the first mark spoken of in Revelation. And this mark is not for those that are lost or those that are worshiping the beast. This is for those that are saved during the tribulation period. You say saved? Well, that's what it says here in verse number, uh, verse number uh, 3. Uh, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Well, since those that were saved prior to the tribulation starting have been raptured out, these can only be those that have been saved since the tribulation began and uh, have become servants of God. So we find that this mark is put on them. Um, and the interesting note I was going to tell you, Miss uh, Penny, and we'll talk a little bit further about this later on, in, in this verse it says, in their foreheads, in the parallel verse in Ezekiel chapter 9 it says, on. And so it could be that they are used interchangeably. Not positive of that, but something to think about, and we'll talk a little further on that later. Uh, verse number 4, And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, John doesn't count them. He just hears this number. I don't know who speaks it. 
who tells him, but somebody tells him there's 144,000 of these folks. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephthalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar Issachar, uh, were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. So we have 12 tribes. 12,000 out of each tribe of Israel are sealed. Anybody notice anything odd about that list? There is something very odd here. Twelve tribes are listed, but these are not the twelve tribes that are referred to often in Scripture. Only ten of them are. There's two that are not listed here. Anybody know which ones they are yet? There are two that are listed. They're replaced by two other names. This is interesting. There are two. Which ones? Dan is one of them. Okay, Dan would be one of the tribes that's not listed. No, Levi's listed. Yeah. Got to read your Bible there. It's in the the book of Revelation, chapter number (laughs) 7. All right. The other one is uh, Ephraim. All right. Dan and Ephraim are not numbered with the 12. There are two others that are given here. Levi, who is not normally listed as one of the tribes because they were not given a portion of the land, but they yet are their own tribe in and of themselves, but they were not necessarily listed as one of the 12 tribes. The other one is Joseph. Joseph is an odd name, isn't it? Joseph, if you remember, had two sons. What were their names? Anybody remember? What were Joseph's two sons' names? Manasseh and which one? Is Ephraim, wasn't it? And remember when he went to get the blessing and he was tricking Abraham and he tried to put the one, the, the youngest one, and had him cross the hands and that sort of thing, or with uh, Isaac. Um, so Ephraim was one of the two. So the two sons of Joseph are no- normally numbered in the twelve tribes. They take Ephraim out and they replace it with Joseph. They just use the name Joseph. I don't know the fullness of the extent of this because uh, Naphtali is still is still listed here. Or, I'm sorry, Manassas is still listed here. Uh, but the um, the thing I think of of this, and I, I, I'm pretty certain of this, is there's a reason why Dan and Ephraim are left out. And I want us to look at that first, and I'll tell you why I think they use the name Joseph as one of the tribes. Let's look in Deuteronomy chapter number 29. Deuteronomy chapter number 29. This is very, very interesting because there are no mistakes in Scripture. And so if they're if they're listed this way, there's a reason for it. And um, for us, it is to figure out and understand and to know why. And there are biblical reasons that give us some biblical evidence why this took place. So let's take a look at a couple of things here. <coughs> Deuteronomy chapter 29, let's look in verse number 18. Let's back at verse 16. For you know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which ye passed by, and ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe 
whose heart uh, turneth away from this day, uh, this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of the nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. Now, God is establishing this covenant with Israel. He's saying, look, if you'll follow me, I will be your God, I will bless your nation, and things will go on. He's making this covenant with Israel. But he gives them a warning here. He says, you, you've seen them with your own eyes, these idols uh, made out of wood and stone. And he says, don't go after these. In verse number 18, he says, don't go and serve these gods, <clears throat> lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord God, notice this, the Lord God will not, what's the next two words here? The Lord God will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book uh, of the law, uh, so, that, so that generation to come of your children shall rise up after you. And so God gives a very, very stern warning here. And he says, listen, uh, you cannot um, break this covenant. If you go after the idols and you do not repent of it and you do not come back and you stay going after these idols... There's going to be a price to pay. He said that you're not going to be spared from these things. Now, look in, um, uh, let's look in 1 Kings. So we know what the covenant is, the God's, God's promise, but God's warning about breaking that promise. Now let's look in 1 Kings chapter number 12. 1 Kings chapter number 12. And let's look down to verse number 25, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Now, remember, um, Jeroboam was a wicked king, and we've been studying that in Sunday school. Jeroboam never, in his line, in that, that kingdom, never see a good king out of 19 kings. They are all evil. They all do wickedly. This is the line that Jeroboam is the, the line of. Notice what it says in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built, uh, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go against Rehoboam king of Judah. So he does not want them to go back to worshiping God. He's afraid he'll lose his kingdom. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of what? Gold. And said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, uh, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And he set uh, the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people. By the way, I think it's very significant that he puts one of them in Bethel. Because if you remember, that's the place where uh, um, uh, Joseph went... Or, uh, uh, es uh, Jacob, excuse me, when he was fleeing Esau, uh, laid his head and had the vision. And this was the place that, that Jacob would go back to because the presence of the Lord was there. This was the house of God for him. This was the place that he would return to. This was the, the place of worship, the place he had built the altar. 
And, uh, and so Jeroboam knows this. He doesn't do this unwittingly. He does this very, very intentionally. So he sets one in Bethel, and he puts the other in Dan. And verse number 30, And this thing became a sin for the people, uh, went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, uh, and, the pre- and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, the fifteenth day, and so on. And so they... they put this altar up, and he puts one in Bethel, and he puts one in Gad. Now, the two tribes that make up the kingdom that Jeroboam is uh, uh, king over uh, are Gad, and get this, half of the tribe of Ephraim, not the other half. The other half is under Rehoboam. Why does the book of Revelation use Joseph? as one of the tribes. I think it's this. Because Ephraim is known as the tribe of Ephraim, even though they were under uh, Jeroboam's rule. But there was a remnant of the tribe of Ephraim that stayed godly and repented, at least some from time to time, would repent of their ungodliness and come back to God under the line of Rehoboam's reign. And I think personally the reason that G- uh, Joseph is used here is it's referring to those from the tribe or the lineage of Ephraim that were not part of the wicked tribe that was under Jeroboam's rule that went after the idols and the gods. Now you say, well, I don't understand that, Brother Greg. I don't think that's really the case. That's fine. You don't have to agree with it. I'm telling you what I believe is very interesting because it seems to be that way from Scripture. Um, So God does not seal anyone from the tribe of Gad or what's referred to here as the tribe of Ephraim. I believe it's the the people that are descendants from that half-tribe that were under uh, Jeroboam's rule. He does not seal them. Now, you say, why is that a big deal? Well, those that are sealed get some benefits. <clears throat> Look with me back in Revelation again. And uh, let's go down. We're going to read to verse number 9 now. All right, let's go. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's go down to verse number 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about all the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell upon the throne of their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which have arrayed in white, which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? There's two questions he asks. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they, notice this, which came out of what? Great tribulation. And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are ones that were not, after they were sealed from that point, they were not uh, affected by the plagues and the judgments of the tribulation period. We also see that if we look back in verse number uh, verse number 3, it says, Hurt not the earth, uh, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And so these that are sealed escape the hardships, if you will, of the tribulation period as far as the judgments are concerned. It does not cause them to escape martyrdom for faithfulness to God. 
That's why you see those that are from the multitude that were saved out of great tribulation. There are multitudes, which it says that you couldn't even number, that are standing before the throne. They're not on earth. They've been martyred already for the cause of Christ. This shows the extent to which those that are believers during the tribulation period will be martyred for the cause of Christ. We found last week that the mode of execution during that time period will be beheading. It's interesting that there is a religion out there that their favorite mode of execution is beheading. It's going to happen again. Uh, So we find that there are the 12 tribes, and then there are uh, the multitudes. So obviously, and it says this, out of every nation and every uh, tongue, I think it is, is the wording that's used here. Verse number uh, 9. A great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. So even if they're, if they're small little tribes that uh, don't belong to a nation, but they speak different languages and dialects, I think the Philippines has like 300 different dialects out there, every single tongue is going to be represented in heaven during this time period. Now, how is that going to be if the gospel has not gotten to all of them? I have a couple thoughts on it. Romans speaks of the fact that because nature itself bears witness and because there is enough faith inherent in the person who is born to seek for God, that anyone who has the desire to will be able to find Him, whether they've had a preacher come to them or not. Now, does that excuse us from not going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature? No, it certainly doesn't. But we certainly need to be busy doing that. But every nation and every tongue is going to be represented in heaven at least by those that were saved during the early part of the tribulation period. There's going to be a lot of people trusting Christ during this time. Um, Some people say, well, which ones are those going to be? Are they, and there's people that say, well, those are only going to be people who have not had a chance to hear the gospel in this lifetime, and they've not the ones that have heard it and rejected it. I don't know that I find that in Scripture. What I do know is that they will get a chance to be saved at the early part of the tribulation period. The world will be so bad at that point, though, if you remember last week when we got down to the end of verse number 6, or chapter number 6, these kings and all these folks and all these people that were unsaved, um, it says, And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from uh, the wrath of the Lamb. And so even the unsaved people know where the judgment is coming from. They say from the wrath of the Lamb. And yet they still do not turn to Him. I don't know how in the world people can go through those types of things, understand what it's about, and still say, I defy you, God. But we're living in a day where that's not so far-fetched, is it? There are people who say, even if it is true, I I don't want what God's offering. And we're living in a day where those attitudes are already developed. The multitudes that will be saved, I think, are the ones that will still submit. That's why I say I don't know that the Holy Spirit is completely taken from the world yet because He still is doing a work in the hearts of those who do not defy God. And uh, there are certainly those that are saved here. Uh, And so uh, we find that there are some things that benefit being sealed, and that is they escape the plagues, they escape the, the, the judgments of the earth, but they do not escape the martyrdom. Notice that their uh, their robes are washed in white. Uh, 
if they were there because they were a martyr, their robes wouldn't be white. The only white robes that are ever mentioned in Scripture are those that have been redeemed not by their own blood, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these are they which have been saved out of great tribulation. Oh my, we're not going to make it. Let me just give you a little bit more and then we'll go. It's already after 8 o'clock and we'll finish. this. this it's got a lot in this chapter, so there's a lot that we've got to get through. But uh, let's look at a couple things here. Uh, verse, um, verse number 10, these uh, multitudes that are standing before the throne, the Bible says in verse number 10 that they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell upon the throne or fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. So the angels, the beasts, the elders are all bowing at the at the throne. Uh, if you look down in verse number seventeen, the Bible says, For the Lamb which is in the what? Midst of the throne. So they're bowing down to the Lamb, and they're bowing down to uh, uh, God that sits on the throne and the Lamb who's in the midst of the throne. They are bowing down and doing obeisance and praising Him and thanking Him, saying, Amen. And now here's, here's what they're saying. Now this is reminiscent, if you remember, back in chapter 5 when they said, Worthy is the Lamb, and they said, they, they gave seven, and, and it's interesting, they give seven things that they are thankful for when they sing the song, Holy, 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 and they are blessed, you know, blessed is God. And he goes through seven attributes of, well, I've written down here, seven attributes of praise. Let's look at them real quick here. Verse number 12, saying, Amen, meaning so be it, that I'm in agreement with. Okay, so they, they see this. Notice what it says here, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. They start with, Amen, this is so. These things ought to characterize our praise. Oh, I wish I had more time tonight, because this is, this is good. You ever thought about this? How in the world do we give blessing to God? That's difficult, isn't it? If you look it up in the Webster's 1828, the word blessing here, when it's used in this sense, is used in the sense of, of giving praise, or it uses this word, another old word, or extol, extolling. Uh, I looked up the word extol. I know it, I know the gist of what it means, but I looked it up. I wanted to see what it said. You know what it says here? I, I, in, in Webster's 1828, the word extol. Uh, let me find it here. I got it in my notes. Uh, let's see here. Here we go. It means to praise, to exalt by praise or commendation, to magnify. You know what ought to mark and characterize our praise about God? We ought to extol Him. Praise, exalt Him by our praise and commendation. We ought not to ever be able to exhaust speaking about how good our God is. And to magnify Him. You ever thought about what it means to magnify God? In fact, other places in the Scripture it talks about that, doesn't it? That we're to magnify Him. To make make the, the, the spotlight on it, to, to help people see it so visibly. 
Uh, I'm 51. I'll be 52 years old this year. Uh, just a few years ago, I got my eyeglasses changed out, and they wanted to give me bifocals. I said, I don't need bifocals. And uh, about three months later, you know what happened? I, I mean, I can't read hardly anything about that far. You want to go flying with me? <laughs> uh, Dave just found that out. He, he wouldn't have flown today. I can't hardly read anything if I hold it like this close. That's why I stumble a lot of times reading up here. I can't hardly see because I, I don't have reading glasses. And so I've got a pair of glasses at my house that oftentimes I take and I put them on. They're reading glasses. They magnify the page. It helps me to see it more clearly. Think about this. Our praise ought to help the world see Christ more clearly. It ought to be the attribute of one, one of the attributes of our praise. There are seven attributes given here. That's just one of them. We're to bring glory to Him. We're to, give, uh, we're to uh, seek Him for wisdom. We're to give thanksgiving to Him. We're to honor Him. We're to, we're to speak of His power and get His power from Him. And we're to speak of His might and His strength. And we're going to deal a little bit more with that next week because there's so much in these attributes of praise that I think are so crucial. I, I, I look at the beginning of Revelation when it says, Blessed are they that read and hear and do the things that are written therein. And there are these hidden nuggets every once in a while that we stumble on in there. And we think, that's something I can grab a hold of. I can do that. I can learn how to praise God more effectively by looking at how the angels do it in heaven. Isn't that amazing? We'll pick up there next week. And uh, we'll, we'll finish chapter 7, hopefully launch into chapter number 8. Uh, I love it. I love the study of Revelation. There's just so much in it. And uh, I hope you're enjoying it too. And getting, I hope you're getting something out of it. I hope it's not just an exercise in intellect or trying to understand things. I hope we're getting something through it. And uh, I think the Holy Spirit can do some great things with it. Let's pray together we'll be dismissed. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Guide and direct us as we go through these pages. Lord, we need your insight. We need to have your understanding. Lord, the things that we do understand just help our hearts to overflow. Oh, we enjoy so much seeing these things. May we learn to take heed to them. May we learn to put them as part of our lives. May your Holy Spirit have free reign and control in our lives to help us with